Welcome to the Next Mobility Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Prenzler. On today's episode, we have the CEO and co-founder of Alta Motors, Mark Finningstein. Um, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for having me. Very glad to be here. Yeah, it's uh, very exciting to, to hear about what you guys are working on, um, both in terms of your complete product, but also just some of the, the technological details within it. Um, so I, I think our listeners are going to be very excited to hear about what you guys are working on um, and what's next for the company. Um, and so uh, I think uh, the first thing to kind of dive into is kind of the, the history of the company. You guys were, were founded about eight years ago um, and, and kind of to, to tackle this whole industry of, of motorcycles and, and to build really cool, um, fast electric motorcycles. What what kind of made you decide to, to do that, Mark? Well, there were there were a number of, of factors. Um, you know, where our our public face and what's up on our website is our first product, which is a very high performance uh, motocross motorcycle, so off road competition. But what got us into the business was was looking much more broadly at the global transportation industry and recognizing that there was a pretty massive overlooked opportunity in light duty vehicles um in 2009 when we met this was a 60 to 80 billion dollar space today it's a 120 billion dollar space by 2020 we think it'll actually be about a quarter of a trillion dollars um and that growth is driven by a, a number of things that we saw back in, in 2009 when we first met, 2010 when we started the company. Um, the, the first is that the world is urbanizing, and so almost all new population growth is in an urban center. What that means is that whereas 20 years ago we thought as people moved up the economic ladder, they would uh, eventually buy a car. That was the American dream, right? Um, mm-hmm. Now, even as they have the economic means to buy a car, it's completely impractical um, for for storing and parking it and for just traveling around the traffic through cities. And so we're, we're seeing not just um, folks sort of uh, plateauing at lightweight vehicles like motorcycles and scooters, we're actually seeing traditional automotive customers downsizing to motorcycles, scooters, or NEVs um, in order to optimize their, their commute and their travel in the modern urban landscape. And that trend is only going to increase. So that was the first thing. Um, that was then compounded uh, while we were working on this by the emergence of transportation as a service, the Ubers, Lyfts, and Didis of the world, where you know the, the mode of transportation in the future is we rent a vehicle for a specific trip, not own a vehicle for a whole year's worth of use. And when you look at that, that also leads to downsizing the vehicles because most trips are one or two passenger trips over very short distances. Um, and then the third one, which we didn't see coming in 2010, but we certainly benefit from, is the emergence of autonomy, uh, whether you're talking autonomous delivery or, or autonomous travel um, by people, that is also further downsizing vehicles. And so it's created this incredible tailwind in the light-duty space for, for small vehicles on the scale of what used to be scooters and in the future will be you know, all different kinds of, of vehicles. Um, so that compelling business opportunity got us into the space. There was also a very compelling environmental opportunity because it turns out motorcycles and scooters are about 10 times dirtier than cars um, because they don't have the same degree of emissions controls and uh, required by regulation that, that the automotive sector does. 
So when you start thinking about urban air quality in cities like Bangkok and Shanghai, really uh, any major city, um, motorcycles, it turns out, are an outsized contributor to that. Um, and then the last thing is that we genuinely love the product. Um, something like three-quarters or more of the, the company all ride motorcycles and scooters. So here you have a compelling business opportunity, a compelling environmental opportunity to leave the planet a better place than we found it, and an opportunity to build products that we inherently love and, and want to own ourselves. Um, it was all of those things together that convinced us basically to all quit uh, nice, stable, happy careers and um, go into free fall on a crazy high-risk venture. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and that it, it kind of jumping off that piece of talking about how clean um, these these bikes are versus um, their gas counterparts. How can electrifying the bikes really kind of um, you know what are really the benefits there compared to to gas powered bikes, and why is there such a big um, difference? You know, it seems like you know when you're looking at a Tesla. Um, you know, it's a full-size vehicle. It uses quite a bit of electricity, but when you're looking at a bike uh, as small as, as, as what you guys are making, it seems like it's, you know, kind of the perfect situation in, in terms of efficiency. Um, how has that played out for you guys? Uh, let me see if I'm understanding the, the question right. I think there's there's two parts to the, the value proposition. There's the value to the, the customer, the person that's writing a check and laying down their heart in cash, and then there's the value to society. And you're asking about the, the consumer value prop, right? Yes, correct, yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think the important thing to recognize and one of the things that we did differently was that for the most part, you know, 90, 95% of consumers really don't care that much about the environmental impact. And a nicer way of saying that is that they might care, but it's, it's not their, even in their top three priorities. The, the first is, does it do the job I want to? In the case of motorcycles and scooters, the, the second, um, and sometimes even the first is, is it faster and more fun? And does it make me feel better than the, any other option that I have. And then, you know, maybe the third is, okay, do I feel guilty about using this thing? And if you're not addressing those first two, you don't have a viable product. You have something that's just selling based on guilt. Um, and that isn't a place that we ever wanted to be. We, we, from the beginning, were committed to making sure that our products were in their categories, the most exciting, most fun thing that you could buy, regardless of what it was that was actually producing power on the vehicle. Um, what's particularly exciting is in the lightweight vehicle space, the, the use cases of these bikes actually lends themselves more to electric than uh, a lot of the, the automotive sector. And what I mean by that is they are traveling on average shorter distances at lower speeds and they're moving vehicles that weigh less. And so the battery demands are a fraction of what they are for traditional automotive. And that means that the, um, the deficit that today's batteries uh, have relative to gasoline as an energy storage tool um, is diminished. And the advantages that the electric motor has in power and torque delivery versus a combustion motor are elevated. And so it, it is actually easier to create that compelling value proposition for the customer in the lightweight space than it, it is in most of the automotive space. 
And so when you're talking about, you know, having those advantages and having to have a product that's, you know, fundamentally better than, you know, gasoline counterparts, what, what about your bikes would you say is, is your key future feature that really, um, brings that value, uh, to the customer? Is it, you know, your battery or your motor, your frame, you know, what do you think is, is probably the, the best part of it? Yes, all of the above. So <laughs> even though I say that, that, the, the motorcycle space was sort of more ripe for disruption by electric. That doesn't mean that you just get that for free, and it's it's real easy to build a great electric motorcycle that's going to displace all the gasoline bikes. Um, we still had to take a, a clean sheet approach to every major component of an electric motorcycle in order to achieve that disruptive level of performance. That meant developing um, our own battery pack, our own battery pack technology, our own battery manufacturing technologies, pioneering those manufacturing technologies, tooling them up, and building our own battery packs in-house in our, our California facility. Um, we developed our own motor from a clean sheet, our own motor control, uh, not just the hardware but the software side, which is, is just as if not more significant than the hardware. Um, and then we developed a whole new chassis system in order to, to house those. And what it took was optimizing all those components for each other at a system level, optimizing each component at its own component level to squeeze the, the most possible performance for the application out of the state of the art. And then, especially in the case of the battery pack, developing whole new technologies to enable us to extract the most um, that was possible out of current battery chemistries. It took all of those things just to get to the, the Point that we did of introducing the, the redshift and being directly competitive or superior to um, the best gas offerings in a segment that places a, a tremendous value on performance and therefore was willing to pay a, a price premium for the performance that we delivered. Um, but that also gave us the foundation to now expand into other segments, not just the technology and the methodologies we've created, but the team that created all those things means we now have the tools to take that same approach to a, a number of other segments within the, the vehicle market. And, and before we jump into kind of the, the battery technology and some of those more specific things, when you're talking about, you know, creating all these things from scratch, it takes a, you know, incredible amount of work and a really uh, great team to come, you know, come together and build this, what, what kind of backgrounds does your team have and, and you know, what, what makes you guys able to, to create such incredible technology? Um, well, this one is, is a pretty interesting part of the story because we don't look like other Silicon Valley or hardware startups that I'm aware of. Um, me and both of my co-founders, we come from product design backgrounds. So my, my career, I went to school for engineering, fine art, and, and business, but I spent most of my career as a management consultant and then as a design consultant. So working with Fortune 500 companies to develop new technologies into interesting products, um, find new markets, uh, develop products for those markets, launch them, um, but really on the design side, not deep technology side. Uh, my co-founders came from similar backgrounds, although with um, more of an engineering and manufacturing um, slant. And, and so collectively, we cover design, engineering, and business, but all from um, a, a product background, not from, you know, not PhDs in battery science, for example. Um, what that gave us, though, was the tools to make sure that we're asking the right questions. And one of the things that you see a lot in not just the startup world, but the corporate world, 
is people throwing millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars and thousands of engineers that are really capable of, of doing um, brilliant things, but they're pointed in the wrong direction. And so, you know, if you're, if you're setting your, your ship sail with all of this horsepower, but it's headed west when it needs to go north, the result at the end isn't the one that, that you want. Um, coming from a design background means we started with what does this product need to be in order for the market to care about it, in order for it to be relevant. And that sets up asking the right questions and solving the right problems. We then recruited in the deep expertise that we needed um, in battery pack design, in motor development, in uh, vehicle firmware, um, in manufacturing methodologies, uh, all to solve some very specific um, challenges in that system level, component level, and then uh, technology level stack that I described earlier. Um, the other thing that we did differently was we made sure to understand the commercialization process and challenges from day one, and that's part of the reason why a lot of our innovation is actually in the manufacturing side of things. Um, and we've seen a, a lot of uh, hardware startups sort of stumble at the commercialization stage um, because they thought that the technology part of it was the hard part, commercialization was easy. And, and uh, often the exact opposite is true. I mean, really, both of those are very hard, and you have to have the right people to solve both. So when you're when you're talking about you know bringing this product to market and really, like you said, finding the the the, the right place to put it and, and where it's really going to fit, um, who who is your target market for these bikes? You know when when I'm I'm not a, a bike expert, but you know when who is it really competing against? Is it someone that's looking for maybe a Ducati or a BMW or maybe more of like a um, a, a dirt bike type of thing, like a KTM or something like that? Yep. Uh, so our, our first platform, the Redshift platform, is built around off-road competition. There are a couple of additional segments that, that that platform ends up being appropriate for, but at its core, it's it's a competition-level off-road bike. And that means it's competing with KTM, Husqvarna, um, to an extent, uh, some of the highest performance Japanese motocross bikes from Honda, Yamaha, Kawasaki, and Suzuki. But really, for the most part, the, the customers are buying the premium European brands. Um, sure. What, what was a, an intrinsic part of our strategy was we wanted to make sure that from day one, we weren't going after an early adopter customer. We weren't going after the environmentalist um, or the what I would call electrophile, someone who's really excited about electric and just wants to buy the best mm -hmm. electric they can find. We wanted our very first customers, in, in, in the best case for us, to be a climate change skeptic. Because if you can convince someone who truly doesn't believe in, in climate change that the electric vehicle is still the best option for them, that's a really magical moment, and it gives you a, a, a pretty strong foundation to then attack the rest of the market. It gives you a really influential first customer um, because their neighbor looks and is like, wow, well, if Phil bought an electric, that thing must be the real deal. And that's, that's the moment that we needed not just as a company but as an industry. Um, so hopefully we've created that today in the off-road space and um, we definitely have our sights set on on on-road segments next. And so, when you're talking about um, you know possibly going into these segments in the next couple of years, what do you think? What do you think the market's going to look like in two to three years for you guys? 
Oh, I think I think it's going to um, be disrupted much faster than than nearly anyone is predicting. Whether you're talking analysts or or media, um, when you look at the fundamental drivers of that disruption, you know what what Tesla showed with the Model S was that when you hit price parity and performance superiority with an electric option, um, the market doesn't just shift. Uh, the electric completely takes over. So in luxury full-size automotive, where Tesla had distribution in 2016, they outsold Mercedes, BMW, Audi combined. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's a, a crazy phenomenon, but you, I, you're going to see that in nearly every segment. Um, and, and the interesting thing is when you look at, especially the battery technology we've created as an enabler, um, there is no longer a cost or really a performance constraint. It's just how fast can, can we or companies like us actually complete and commercialize the product for those segments. Um, but we're already at the point where, where the electric uh, can and should be the higher performance and equal, if not lower cost option. So, um, you know, and as soon as, as those products are introduced on a segment by segment basis, I think we're going to see these dramatic shifts, just like we saw in luxury auto. And so we're going to take a quick break here, but right after the break, we're going to dive into some of that technology uh, running the batteries behind your, your bikes. Uh, so we'll be right back after this break. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Next Mobility. Next week, we will be having on the CEO of Eviation, a new startup working to build a private electric jet. If you're enjoying the Next Mobility podcast, please make sure you subscribe and leave us a review to help us grow the podcast faster. Now let's get back to this week's episode. We are here with... Uh, Mark Fennigstein. Uh, we're talking about his company, Alta Motors, um, and what they're doing to the the motorcycle space with electrification. Um, and, and now we're going to kind of dive into some of the battery technology that's powering their bikes and, and what really sets it apart. Um, and so, Mark, you, you're your bikes are using the, the incredibly popular 18650 cells that, you know, you see in, in Teslas and, and used to be in more laptops and that sort of thing. But how does your, your pack level and, and that module level technology really, you know, take these cells, you know, to the next level um, and allow your bikes to, to really uh, beat their, their gasoline counterparts? Sure. So, um, you know, the, the 18650 cell uh, was chosen by Tesla for all of the right reasons. It has the highest energy density um, of, of commercially available cells. Um, it has the lowest cost per kilowatt hour of commercially available cells. And most importantly, it is manufactured at extremely high qualities and consistency um, at a scale that, uh, that the transportation industry requires. It comes with it, though, some challenges of packaging these small, oddly shaped cells into large format packs. Um, where we concentrated was at the pack level and, and all of the systems that it takes to manage these cells thermally, electrically, um, and mechanically into a safe and reliable pack. And what we were able to do was reduce the pack overhead by something on the order of, of 75% while maintaining the reliability and safety that an automotive scale pack requires. Um, so, you know, when you when you look at that 75% reduction of something like 
40 or 50 percent of the pack, what you're getting is a major weight and cost savings um, all on the foundation of, of these cylindrical cells. Um, and I say cylindrical because our technology also applies to the upcoming uh, 2170 cells as, as well. So we, we definitely see the near-term future um, still being dominated by cylindrical cells, and, uh, and, and we think that um, our technology or technologies like ours are, are going to be what creates the step functions that, that people have been waiting for. You know, I think most folks concentrate on the material or the chemistry side of, of battery cell technology, and that tends to be smooth and steady progress in the you know, 5 to 8% improvements that we see year on year. You really don't see step functions um, in, in, except when they happen at the pack and at the system level, and that's what we've done. When you're talking about the pack and the system level, you guys have been able to, to really achieve an energy density um, at the pack level that's, that's really um, you know, beating, beating out everyone in the entire, you know, battery segment in, in terms of, you know, automotive, um, you know, what, what's enabling, uh, you guys to really create that really great energy density in those, uh, those battery packs? Uh, well, there's a couple of things and I can't be too specific about those. I apologize. Sure. Sure. Um, (laughs) but in terms of, in terms of the what rather than the how, uh, we, we pioneered a methodology for cooling cells or for moving heat in and out of cells that is about um, 10 times more efficient than traditional approaches to, to extracting heat from cells. And that really becomes the limiting factor on how much power you can get from a cell or how, much, uh, how quickly you can charge a cell. And it also is the, the critical factor on the longevity of the cells. Can you maintain consistent cell temperatures across the entire pack? So to be able to, to move that, that thermal energy out of the cell 10 times faster enables us to, in the case of the, the Redshift platform, um, have uh, what I would call a smart passive cooling system where we don't have to actively heat and cool the cells. The system will self-regulate itself to the optimum temperature and, and still maintain a temperature gradient across our entire pack, which is 504 cells of plus or minus 2 degrees C, um, which is what, what you need to have a long-lived pack. The other thing that we were able to maintain partially due to this thermal technology um, and, and partially from a couple of other technologies we layered up on top of it was to maintain anti-thermal propagation. And that's something that, that Tesla's pioneered. Um, interestingly, a lot of the other automotive manufacturers have not pursued, or at least not in the same way, but that's a fancy way of saying um, preventing pack fires. And mm-hmm. so despite our very high, our, our industry-leading energy densities, we've actually maintained inherent thermal propagation resistance where um, if you uh, uh, suffer a cell failure, which statistically will happen as millions and millions of these vehicles are out there, it doesn't matter how perfect your manufacturing is, statistically mm-hmm. you'll get a cell with a defect. Um, what we have ensured is that if you do have a, a cell with a defect and it goes into thermal runaway and it releases all of its energy, that does not result in a pack fire. And we've actually tested that um, to more than five simultaneous cell failures. When you think about these cells, the defect rates are less than one in a million. So you're talking about one in a million to, an, to the order of five. It's a statistical impossibility for our, our packs um, 
mm-hmm. go into uh, a thermal runaway. Now, that's not to say if you know, a vehicle is run over by a tractor trailer, there's still going to be vehicle fires. But um, what we're especially concerned about is, is vehicle fires that occur during charging, because that's a thing that can happen in a garage, in an apartment building. And um, you want to make sure that you have very, very robust um, uh, electrical management, so voltage management of the, the cells. And then even in the event uh, of, of that somehow failing, um, you want to make sure that you can actually manage the thermal event of a, a, a cell going into runaway. And, and we've been able to maintain that um, even while um, moving the bar so far forward on energy densities. And, and with... Um whether it's you know thermal management or motor management and all that, the, one of the unique things about a, electrically powered vehicles is you have that advantage to, or maybe you know some people probably think it's a little bit of a difficulty, but you have an advantage to to really build a, a really interesting software platform around that powertrain and how it works. Uh, what what have you guys done there, um, and how have you made that you know miniaturized onto a, a bike um, format? Um, so for the, we have a few more tricks up our sleeve, and I guess we, uh, hopefully we always will, um, for the future. For the Redshift, where we concentrated our, our software development efforts was first and foremost on safety. Um, and that required, just like on the hardware side, taking a clean sheet approach. So we didn't use, you know, uh, large libraries of existing open source code. We actually built it up, bottoms up, line by line, to make sure that we had complete control and understanding of everything that went into the vehicle. Um, and then in terms of where we, we focused that horsepower, it was all on motor control, throttle control, and the connection from the rider's brain and the rider's wrist to that rear tire. Um, for, for this market segment, it's all about the dynamic performance of the motorcycle, and, and that is the, the thing that is most magical when, when people finally have a chance to try a redshift. That's what they remark on is just how intuitive and naturally the, the bike delivers power and how comfortable they immediately feel at the limits of, of what the bike and the tire can do in a way that really isn't achievable on a, a gas vehicle or, or isn't achievable for 99% of the population. And, you know, only the top, top riders in the world actually have, have access to the, the skills and brain power to, to ride the bike at its very, very limits, uh, a gas bike. Um, so that's where we, we put the, the effort to date. Um, down the road, uh, certainly you have a, a digital platform. You have nearly infinite control over the motor. Um, it's very easy to, to, uh, to do a lot with um, customizing the performance and the character of the bike. Um, to moving data on and off the bike and understanding uh, and analyzing your your ride experience as a as a customer um, and feeding that back into the way you ride um, uh, or even integrating other aspects of your life um, for these bikes integrating other aspects of your life is a distraction you probably don't want while you're operating a motorcycle but that that isn't to say that for other formats of vehicle down the road that that, that stuff isn't possible and what's great is in you know uh, the modern age of, of software development platforms and connectivity, it's actually very fast, very cheap to develop a lot of that. Back to one of my earlier points, you just want to make sure that you're solving the right problems and you're solving real customer problems with that functionality. And so in, in terms of, you know, in, in, in totality, you know, building this company and, and doing and solving all these problems and building the platforms, 
uh, over the years, you guys have, have raised north of roughly 43 million, and, and just this year, you raised about 27 million. Um, you know, how, how is the company kind of progressing financially, and, and how are things working out in terms of growth? Um, the, uh, the demand for the Redshift is fantastic. I mean, I think uh, we, we did everything that we wanted to with that platform and, and more. Um, the, the money that we raised this last year was about scaling that platform and, and ramping up the production, supporting those customers and dealers, building out the dealership network, and uh, eventually getting that product um, to the, the rest of the world. There's been... Um, even more demand outside of the U.S. for it than inside of the U.S. So we're we're pretty excited to get uh, to get it into the hands of our global customers. Um, in addition to that, I, as I I don't think I subtly alluded to, um, there's a lot more that we can do with the, the technology and the capabilities that we've created. So mm-hmm. some of that mm-hmm. funding will go towards development of our next vehicle platforms. And you'll have to forgive me for being a little bit coy about what comes next. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, how can someone get their hands on, on one of these bikes today? You know, where are you guys selling them and, and how how is that process working right now? So we sell through the traditional motorcycle dealership network. And that was a, a very conscious choice on our part. Um, in contrast to Tesla, so I always end up comparing us, but this is this is a, a place where where we veered off the path, and we did that because in the U.S., motorcycles really are a recreational and a lifestyle product, and that means the dealership network is a very different animal than in automotive space. Um, the easy way to describe it is, you know, if your Mercedes is working, there's no way you're at a Mercedes dealership on a Saturday. If your Ducati Mm -hmm. is working or your Mm -hmm. Harley is working, there's actually a good chance that you're at the dealership on a Saturday because it's a a social hub. It's, you know, it's your passion. It's where you check out the the stuff that that you love and where you meet people that um, share your passions. And so for us um, in the U.S., the dealership network really represented a a complement to us and our, our dealers come to the equation with a book of customers and a brand and a reputation that in a lot of cases is stronger than ours, especially on day one. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we're mm-hmm. in the U.S. selling through, um, it's, it's often uh, dealerships that have carried the European brands, but that's not universally true. We um, are careful to select for the dealerships that have the best reputations for um, customer service not necessarily, you know, the high-volume value-oriented ones, but the ones that people have bought multiple bikes from. Um, on our website, you can find a local dealer. Um, there are about 35 of them nationwide right now, so you should be able to find one at least within a, a few hours' driving distance, if not closer. And uh, all of our dealers carry demos, um, not just of the MX, that um, hit market earlier this year, but of our supermoto that was just released, and they'll soon have our enduro, our dual sport that we announced, um, I think, last week, and those are just hitting dealerships now. Um, so the the Redshift MX was our off-road competition bike. This is a, a focused off-road only race bike um, that really was about proving in an established race format that our electrics were not only every bit of the bike that the gas bikes were, but were even superior. With that in market, 
we've now launched two street legal models um, that aren't as competition focused, but you know I, I think will um, give give more people opportunity to try out what we've built. So the one that we launched um, about a month ago is the Redshift SM, and this is a, a supermoto, which is a ridiculously fun format. I think they're the most fun style of motorcycles out there. Um, but the gas bikes have always been somewhat constrained by um, the, the um, maintenance-intensive nature um, because they're built on a motocross platform. Um, with electric, there's no maintenance, so you get all the fun, all the benefits of a race-bred gas supermoto and none of the, the headaches. It's a bike that you can really ride every day. And if you're trying to get from sure. one side of Manhattan to the other, there is truly nothing with a license plate that will keep up with this bike. Um, wow. And then the third one that we just launched last week is the Enduro, which is kind of a combination of the two. It's off-road oriented, it's knobby tires, but it, it comes with a license plate. So you can use it to link up trails and, and be street legal on public roads. And in California, you don't have to worry about whether it's red sticker or green sticker season. You can kind of use it everywhere. Um, but all of them are built on the same competition motocross chassis as the original Redshift MX. Um, down the road, you know, we have our, our sights set on new platforms that will come in at different weight and power and range classes. Um, right now we're building everything off of the, the motocross uh, platform. Yeah, makes sense. Um, it, sounds, it sounds really exciting to, to have that platform expanding soon and, and all the different uh, use cases you have on it right now. Um, and, and we've touched base a little bit on it, but could you talk a little bit about um, the manufacturing process and, and uh, what kind of run rate you guys are currently at and, and how you're going to scale it up a, and, and to a point of uh, an inflection? Yeah, yeah. Um, so right now, uh, well, we, we manufacture everything in-house. So the bikes are actually built in Northern California, just outside of San Francisco. When I say built in-house, that includes full battery manufacturing, all the way from raw cells to completed battery packs. So as vertically integrated, um, at least as Tesla was until the Gigafactory came online, and, and very much a, an American-made um, product, um, we're, we're still in what I would call a, a pilot production phase, where we're producing about 20 bikes per week. And a lot of that is to make sure that we actually have the capacity to support our dealers and our customers because we're not just building technology, we're not just building batteries and bikes, and we're building um, a brand and we're building a network of, of customers. And so there's a little bit of making sure that we don't let any one part of the business get out ahead of, of another part. And so we're, we're, we're purposefully restricting our production right now just to make sure that you know, all the pieces of the puzzle are in place. Um, we actually have the capacity in our factory in Northern California um, to do about 50 bikes per shift per week. So with a two shift, we could two shifts we could be doing 100 bikes a week um, out of out of our San Francisco factory. Yeah, that's that's very exciting. It's it's great to hear that you guys are uh, really trying to scale everything at, at you know at equal levels, making sure nothing's getting out of hand. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us on the, the podcast this week. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Um, great to meet you and, uh, looking forward to being a regular listener from here on out. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Next Mobility. Stay tuned for next week's episode with the CEO of Eviation. See you next time. Music by Jack Maherl and album cover art by Sydney Yee. Thank you.